Hey GeoTrekkers, welcome to podcast number 66 of the GeoTrek podcast titled U-Surge and Flood Information Systems. In this podcast, we'll be talking about some of the research we've been doing here at GeoTrek and our partners like Flood Information Systems and CNC Catastrophe and National Claims. We actually run the international storm surge database called U-Surge. This is a big deal. Coastal flooding is the world's deadliest, costliest natural hazard, and we run the data that um, help people really understand their risk for being exposed to this huge hazard. This is going to be a very applicable podcast for people that live in coastal zones, but also if you're involved with any kind of disaster risk mapping. Disasters are really dependent on geography and where you are, and a lot of what we do here with U-Surge and Flood Information System really depends on your geography. We're going to be sharing examples of that. So the examples we share in this podcast go well beyond the coast and well beyond coastal flooding as well. A little bit of an introduction here to the podcast. GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient to anything that Mother Nature can throw at you. So, hey, we're recording this on a new platform. If you notice a difference, if it's improved, or if the audio quality, video quality is better or worse, let us know about that. We're recording this on something called the Melon platform. This is a little bit different setup, but we're hoping that this leads to high quality audio and video content moving forward. Today, I'm just doing a solo podcast, but we'll be back with guests through the month of March. We have some great guests lined up that are going to really touch on things like landscape architecture, on emergency management planning, all kinds of interesting guests. And then, of course, we're going to get into severe weather storm season in the springtime in the Southern Plains, Central Plains, and even in the Southeastern states. And then, of course, Behind that, we have hurricane season coming up before we know it. So a lot of great stuff planned here on the podcast. Again, we're measuring or we're recording this on a different platform. And so it might look a little bit different, but uh, we'd love to have any feedback from you on uh, on what you think about the podcast, what you think about the quality and um, and always the content too. We're always curious to, to know what our listeners think about what we're producing as well. A favor to ask you, we would love if you would share this podcast, this podcast specifically for anyone that you know that lives along the Gulf or Atlantic coast of the U.S. We're going to talk a lot about hurricane impacts and coastal flooding in strong coastal storms, especially along the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast. So anyone you know living in a coastal zone like that could really benefit from this podcast, as well as uh, people around the country that are interested in disaster risk assessment as well. They may be interested in this podcast. If you could share them, share this with them, consider that the price of this podcast. It's free otherwise. If you could share it with some friends, that would be fantastic. So we're going to talk a little bit here about uh, the background behind what we're doing. And I wanted to start with a story. If you can see here, if you're if you're watching online, I'm wearing my Mardi Gras beads. So I live in Galveston, Texas, a little tropical island, really along the Gulf Coast, southeast of Houston. And here in this part of the world, from Galveston through South Louisiana, Pensacola, Mobile, Alabama, the whole Mississippi coast, Mardi Gras is a big deal. And so this week is, is Mardi Gras week when I'm recording this. And I was actually out there catching some beads at the Mardi Gras parade the other night. I'm still wearing some beads here. It's a fun, festive time here along the Gulf Coast. And I ran into a friend who asked, you know, uh, Dr. Howe, what are you doing now that there aren't hurricanes? So a lot of people know about my hurricane forecasting work. I'm often on the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast in the summertime forecasting hurricanes or going into 
hurricanes and, and doing field observations, staying afterwards, learning what we can about the flood patterns and the impacts. And so that really gets a lot of visibility. And people often ask me, what do I do when there aren't hurricanes? What do I do in the wintertime? This is where we're going to get into talking about usage and about flood information systems, these, these databases and data-driven analysis that we do to really help people predict risk. That's a big part of what I do year-round, as well as science communication like this podcast. But we're going to be talking a little bit about that. And kind of the impetus for it was this conversation I had at the Mardi Gras parade. And I thought, you know what? This ties in really well with a lot of the risk assessment work that we are doing. So I wanted to talk by start by talking about storm surge. So when a hurricane, so let's talk about hurricanes. They're really these areas uh, that have a warm core. They're their own entity. Basically, a cluster of thunderstorms over warm tropical water will um, start sucking air towards the middle of it if um, and basically rotating. And so here in the northern hemisphere, they rotate counterclockwise. In the southern hemisphere, they ro rotate clockwise. But uh, these are tropical cyclones. They're not part of a front. Um, they're, they're their own their own entity, when the wind speeds reach 39 miles an hour, they're a tropical storm. When they reach 74 miles an hour, they're a hurricane. And they get a name once they become a tropical storm. And so uh, a storm surge, really these tropical cyclones, that's a generic name for them. Here in the Western Atlantic, we call them hurricanes. Eastern Pacific, we call them hurricanes. In the Western Pacific, which is also East Asia, we call them typhoons. It's the same, same phenomenon. And then generally in Australia, Oceania, they just call them tropical cyclones. Also in India, Bangladesh, tropical cyclones. But it's the same phenomenon. It's the same thing. It's basically like a hurricane. These storms are the most really, I guess, highest impact storms on the planet. Huge impact from these storms. And they throw three hazards at us. They throw strong winds, heavy rain, and storm surge. Really, this, this massive push of salt water up onto the land. That push of salt water called a storm surge is fast flowing water. It looks like a raging river. There can be large destructive waves on top of that storm surge water. And it, those storm surges can push inland sometimes for more than 20 miles. So imagine how densely populated a lot of our coastlines are. All those houses and all that infrastructure there can be inundated by this fast moving salt water. It's the world's deadliest, costliest natural hazard. On average, if you go back far enough and, and include enough decades, because some previous decades were very deadly, an average of 15,000 people per year die from storm surge inundations and then billions of dollars of losses per year. Look at Hurricane Ian last September, over 50 billion in losses. A big part of that is the storm surge. So if you totaled it up, I wouldn't be surprised if there's over 10 billion in losses annually from storm surge events. It's a big deal. It's a big hazard. You might wonder, well, why have I not really seen a lot of video or footage of that? It's not because it's not destructive. It's really hard to film this and document it and not perish. It's that destructive. And so a lot of times when we think of hurricanes, we think of uh, wind because we see videos of palm trees blowing around in the wind. What we may not see is this fast-moving storm surge because it's really hard to document it. A lot of storm chasers are, chasers are doing better now getting out there and deploying these really hardened cameras that are that are recording the storm surge in, in a better light than we've seen before. We're seeing how destructive it was. There were some great videos last year from Hurricane Ian. So uh, this is a, a big deal, storm surge hazards. When I moved to the Gulf Coast, in 2008 to start grad school uh, in Louisiana, there was no storm surge database for the Gulf Coast or really for the US at all. And it took me about six months to figure that out. I went to, um, I was at Louisiana State University. I was studying climate science through the Department of Geography. 
and I was really trying to understand how often these events occur, how an event like Katrina, how often does that occur? Where can it occur? Really anything I can about the climate science behind these storm surge events. And about six months into that, I realized, hang on a second. So there's no storm surge database. This is the most deadly costly hazard and we do not have a database, a central archive. Like, why is that? So I started digging into this. This is, again, 15 years ago, back in 2008. What I quickly began to see is there were plenty of data out there, plenty of high watermarks. They were just very, very scattered. So I found data from just in my first cut of building these data, I found data from 62 different sources. So this included a lot of federal sources like National Hurricane Center reports going back to 1958, U.S. Army Corps maps going back to the 1880s. Uh, USGS, they have some great websites. They've been, been deploying these mobile tide storm tide sensors since Hurricane Rita in 2005. And then FEMA even has really gotten into the act, especially since Hurricane Katrina, putting out field teams and recording high water marks from inundated buildings and things like that. This entire archive, these are a lot of federal data that are provided in separate reports. Uh, they were you know, data that I found that I could bring together into a central place. There were a lot of academic data. So a lot of people had done scientific research projects or written journal articles. And so those data were also out there. And then what I call anecdotal data. So you, especially for the really old events, you may not find a federal document that shows a map or a science report. You may not find any academic literature, but you may find in an old newspaper archive from, I don't know, the year 1915, you may find if you dig deep enough that there was a high watermark of six inches in some building in downtown Mobile or downtown Miami or in, in that era, you could see, you could find if you dig enough, some high watermarks, you may spend a whole morning digging for one high watermark, but that is kind of the key behind unlocking what that flood level might have been in that metro in that urban area. So anyway, just building these data, it took a long time to do it. I spent several years and the first cut, I had something what I call peak obs. What are the peak observations? I had high watermarks for around 200 tropical storms and hurricanes along the Gulf Coast since 1880 and really started to get an idea of this pattern. Like, like what did this look like as we started to map out these coastal flood patterns. And what we saw is there really was a geography to it. The northern and western Gulf Coast from the Florida Panhandle through Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas had a lot of these, or at least a substantial amount of these big surge events, 10, 15, up to 20 feet, or even sometimes a little bit higher. You also saw some events like that in the Florida Keys, but the west coast of Florida, this area around Tampa, down through Fort Myers and Naples, we didn't see any surge events higher than maybe like 12 or 13 feet in that 140 year history. And so it doesn't mean that we could not see a 20 foot storm surge in Tampa Bay. It just means when we look at a snapshot of 140 years of data, we start to see some patterns start to play out. And uh, there's a reason for that. There's a geography to all hazards. And the geography here is, is influenced by a couple different factors one of which has to do with the water depth offshore. It's counterintuitive where the water depth is more shallow, the storm surge is higher, and also the coastal profile and the coastal shape where you have right angles in the coastline, like the Mississippi River Delta in South Louisiana, it kind of puts this boot out into the Gulf of Mexico 
and it creates a pretty nice right angle there in um, getting east of New Orleans, south of the Mississippi coast, in there by the Mississippi Sound, places like Shell Beach, Louisiana, Bay Waveland, Mississippi. There's a nice right angle there, and it's extremely shallow. One of the most storm surge prone areas on Earth because of the combination of the shallow water depth and the right angle on the coast. Other areas, for example, concave shape, concave shaped coastlines like the coastline of Georgia. A lot of people say, oh, if you live in Georgia, you're fine. Hurricanes always miss you. Well, that's not true when you go back to the 1880s and 1890s. There were several really destructive hurricanes that hit, and they have a pretty shallow bathymetry or water depth, and they have this concave-shaped coastline that kind of traps water in there. And so they're very vulnerable to storm surge if you happen to get the right track, or the wrong track, I should say, of a hurricane. Other areas, some pinch points that you can think of where you have water that's starting out in a sound or a bay and then becomes a pinch point. When when winds are pushing water into that, it can really elevate storm surge levels. Another area that stands out to me is the southwestern part of Long Island Sound. This is really between New York, Long Island, New York, and the Connecticut uh, coastline. You get this Long Island Sound that really runs from east to west, but as you go west in Long Island Sound, the channel starts to get more and more narrow. And so as a hurricane approaches the mid-Atlantic or New England coast, you get this persistent east wind blowing from east to west in Long Island Sound. It's kind of forcing water into this channel that gets narrower and narrower when you get to the eastern part of Metro New York City. And that can really, um, really enhance coastal flood levels in, uh, in areas over by LaGuardia Airport, eastern part of Bronx and Brooklyn, you can really, uh, really get the storm surge levels up in that area. So again, there's a geography, there's a pattern to this. Certain areas tend to be more vulnerable than other areas. And so it, it helps to really know what that pattern looks like. And that's what we did with this peak storm surge OBS. And, uh, you know, after that, we actually created what we call all OBS. Instead of just the peak water level per storm, we went through it and denoted all of the high water marks per storm. Once we had all of those layers, we could overlay them and we could start to really analyze coastal flood risk at different locations. This type of data, I mean, this I've been working on this for 15 years. And it, it, I don't know, you could say maybe my life's work, I do other things as well, but I've really put thousands of hours into this. And for our young scientists out there, whenever you do this kind of research and you're really trying to document something in the, in the climate record, you really need to archive every scrap of information, no matter how small. So just for the Gulf of Mexico, I have, I have a document that's 700 pages long that supports all of my decisions, all of my sources. And so, for example, for the 1900 storm, where I live in Galveston, we have the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. Happened here on September 8, 1900. A massive 15.7-foot storm surge washed over Galveston Island. How do I know it was 15.7 feet? Well, I have 22 different sources of data that I've used. And what you find with some of these more complex storms, some of these higher impact storms, where there's a lot of impact, a lot of documentation, once you get up over eight, 10 different sources, the picture starts to become a lot clearer. You get a really good idea what happened, where the high water was, how, how quickly the water came in, and, and all these other uh, good things as well. So there's a lot of information in, in um, what we call U-Surge. You know, when I was a grad student, I called it Surge That. Then I graduated 
from a, I did a master's and PhD and then I kept going with this. I thought, you know, I've, I've spent years of my life doing this. Why don't I keep going and building out these data and I continue to work with it. I live in a very disaster prone area because of this hazard. And so I work a lot along the Gulf Coast and continue to develop these data sets as I work with coastal communities, coastal stakeholders, academics. I work with people in both the public and private sector to try to help them understand their flood history and flood risk. Um, let's talk as we're moving ahead at the, where we're at right now with, uh, with U-Surge. Uh, that's the database that we're running here. It, it's really the international storm surge database. I actually worked with Pagasa. They're like NOAA for the Philippines. I worked closely with them in my doctoral research to create the first storm surge database for the Philippines. That led to me being on PBS Nova. So if you're a science geek, you've probably seen PBS's public television uh, science program called Nova. I couldn't believe when they contacted me to come on Nova. I was a grad student. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. They flew me over to Atlanta. I went to a studio. We recorded an, an episode. But that all came from this work I did with the government of the Philippines to create their first storm surge database. I also created the first surge database for Japan and for Australia, for India, Bangladesh, really these areas of the world that have the big impacts, also some areas in the Caribbean as well. Anywhere I could find data, I've archived it, and the data set continues to grow to this day. So right now we have high water marks for 212 hurricanes and tropical storms along the Gulf Coast since 1851. The Atlantic data, to be honest, the first time they were built, I'm not going to mention names, there, there was someone else building the Atlantic that made a lot of mistakes, so I'm, I'm going back through it now. About I go through several years of data per day. I've made it back to like 1985. And so I have 36 high water marks from hurricanes from 1985 to present. I have a lot of supporting documentation that's going to help me quickly get back through the 70s, 60s, 50s. And I think by April of 2023, I'll have the Atlantic done as well. High water marks, we have 6,458 high water marks. That's, so that's all the high water marks. Like, for example, Katrina or Ike. They maybe put 400, 500 or more high water marks. We've archived all of that. We have over 6,000 high water marks along the Gulf Coast since 1851, uh, close to 3,900 high water marks along the Atlantic since 1888. The total number of high water marks, 10,315. So again, it's a big number. It's hard to really know what that means. Again, in the recent reports, things like the national, you can go to a National Hurricane Center report and download or do data entry on 250 high water marks or USGS. They have a website. All of a sudden, you pick up 150, 200 high water marks. But again, keep in mind a lot of the older documentation, you may spend hours to get one high water mark for one storm. So the fact that we have over 10,000 high water marks, that's a lot of information telling us about our fl coastal flood risk going back to the 1800s. So what do we do with these data? So this is an interesting part of this podcast talking about build what we're talking about here is building hazard data sets, understanding that. But let's get into beyond building the data and how we do that. And by the way, a lot of building these data is just going through library archives. A lot of it's been done online, but not all of it. I've actually traveled extensively to coastal libraries. I've spent time in archives. Whenever I'm traveling, I try to go into a local library if I'm in a coastal community. A lot of stuff is online, but not everything. Sometimes you'll find maps, you'll find journals, you'll find photos. Any scrap of information, we're interested to find it to help us understand that coastal flood risk better. So what do we do with these data? It's a great question. Um, so with these data, there are a couple things we can do. For one, we can analyze the data to 
estimate what we call return frequencies. And sometimes that same term is called a return period. So a return frequency or, or a return period is a threshold or an extreme level. It could be for wind or for floodwaters or for whatever hazard you're working with. It's a level that is so rare that it only occurs once every however many years in the return period. So this is when we hear about like the 100-year storm. What does that mean? That means a flood level so rare that you only equal or exceed that flood level on average once every 100 years. You could have two 100-year storms back to back. They could be in consecutive years. It's not likely, but it could happen. What it doesn't mean, and a lot of people mis misinterpret this, a lot of people say, well, we had a 100-year storm five years ago, so we're, we're good for another 95 years. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. You could get 200-year storms in five years and then none in the next 200 years. There's a lot of randomness. There's a surprising amount of clustering in the data sets, and that's why we find these areas, like we talk about Georgia and southern South Carolina, 1880s, 1890s, they're just getting pounded, and then they go really quiet for decades. We see that sometimes in the data record. So uh, really interesting things, and that's something that we do. We use these data to understand uh, return frequencies. So basically, how high should the water level get um, within time? Like, or, or another way to put it, if you have a specific water level, maybe the level of your house, maybe you're at nine feet above sea level. How often should you flood? Our data can be used to help you see, oh, on average, that home should flood every 62 years. That's the kind of thing that we can pinpoint with our research. And a second thing we do is we look at how hurricanes generate storm surge. And so there are a couple factors to this. Several of the factors have to do with the coastal environment. Again, the coastal profile, the coastal shape, where we have water funneling into bays or pinch points, right angles in the coast. We can really really increase the storm surge levels. But there are other factors that have to do with the storm itself, the geographic size of a storm, the forward speed of a storm, the maximum sustained winds, the air pressure. All of these things are environmental factors that can lead us to understand how storm surge is produced and can lead us to better forecasting storm surge moving into the future. A lot of people just assume that the higher category hurricane will produce a higher storm surge. So we have a category system called the Saffir-Simpson Hurricane Wind Scale. And basically what that does is classifies hurricanes on a scale of one to five. The higher the number, the more destructive the winds. People make the assumption the higher the category, also the higher the salt water will be. There is some correlation there, but it's not perfect and often it's misleading. So if you go to downtown Galveston where I live and you look at the high water marks downtown, in our downtown area, the highest high water mark comes from Hurricane Ike in 2008, which was a high-end Category 2 hurricane. On this pole or a column down by Tequilo's Mexican Restaurant, there are five high water marks on this column. The lowest of the five is from Hurricane Alicia in 1983. So Ike was the highest. It was a Category 2. Alicia is the lowest on the column. It was a Category 3. So you may say, how in the world does a stronger hurricane produce a lower storm surge level? Well, again, there's more to consider than just the wind speed at landfall. So Alicia was a relatively small, rapidly intensifying Category 3 hurricane that was just blowing up right before it made landfall. And so because it was fairly geographically small and, and intensifying, it didn't really have as much time to push as much salt water. 
Hurricane Ike was, in 2008, a very large, uh, moderately moving, but very geographically large hurricane with a very low pressure. It was upper level category two, almost category three. But for that, the air pressure, you know, this is interesting. If you have two hurricanes that have the same wind speed and one of the hurricanes is much geographically larger, it's going to have a much lower air pressure. So Ike had this air pressure that would be more indicative of like a category three, an upper level cat three, but it was only cat two because it was so geographically large. There was a tremendous amount of energy. Ike was pushing a ridiculous amount of salt water to the coast for days. Even though it was only an upper level cat two, it inundated coastal Texas with up to 17 and a half feet of storm surge in the Bolivar Peninsula. Here in Galveston, where I live and where I'm talking about these high water marks, we had a 12-foot storm surge. So it broke our record for downtown, but again, it was only an upper-level Cat 2 hurricane. I probably shouldn't say only, but in comparison, again, higher category hurricanes produced a lower saltwater flood level. And so using all this information together, we can actually use it to predict and to understand how hurricanes generate storm surge. How important is the geographic size for generating storm surge? How important is the air pressure and the wind stress and all of these things? We're able to kind of bring all of these data together and tease out the science and understand how these factors work together, which is really pretty cool. Uh, so, you know, this is really interesting. I want to give some other examples as well. Hurricane Katrina made landfall in coastal Mississippi as a Category 3 hurricane. It generated the highest storm surge level on record in the Western Hemisphere, around 28 feet. This is interesting because Hurricane Camille in 1969 made landfall in the same area of the coastline. Camille was a Cat 5. There have only been four landfalling Cat 5 hurricanes since 1851. Camille was one of the four. But Camille's water level at Cat 5 was lower than Katrina's at Cat 3, and that proved fatal. There were people that said, look, my house survived Hurricane Camille without flooding, and it was a Cat 5, so I'm going to be fine from this Cat 3. And suddenly there's five feet of salt water in their house and they're drowning. There was a, a quote saying Hurricane Camille killed more people in 2005 than it killed in 1969. What they mean by that, now Camille only happened once in 1969 and then the name was retired. So you could say, how did Camille kill more people in 2005 than in 1969? Well, what they're getting at there is a lot of people in 2005 made evacuation decisions or did not make evacuation decisions for Hurricane Katrina based on what happened with Hurricane Camille or based on the comparison between Katrina and Camille. And so people have made the argument, if you take Camille out of the equation, more people would have evacuated for Katrina and more lives would have been saved. So really interesting. And again, we're getting at this topic of, uh, of you know these categories and these storms. How did Katrina produce a higher storm surge at Category 3 than Camille at Category 5? And we're going to talk a little bit about that. My research actually touched on that quite deeply in my dissertation. So another example, too, is um, let's talk about this. Yeah, so let's actually talk about how Katrina produced a higher storm surge as a Cat 3 than Camille and a Cat 5. How is that possible? I did this extensive research once I built the storm surge database for the Gulf Coast where I took all of these high water marks, and then I took the tracks for more than 100 hurricanes since the late 1800s, and I was interested to start kind of breaking down the science and correlating this and see how things work. What I found is that the relationship between storm surge and wind speeds did not correlate nearly as well at landfall as it did with the wind speeds before landfall. 
In fact, at three-hour increments before landfall, the relationship improves until 18 hours before landfall. That's the best relationship between wind speeds and storm surge. And so the pre-landfall wind speeds correlate much better with storm surge heights than the wind speeds at landfall. So when you look at Hurricane Katrina, 18 hours before landfall, maximum sustained winds were 175 miles an hour. It was well beyond, almost by 20 miles an hour beyond the Cat 5 threshold. So Katrina pre-landfall was also a Cat 5. Actually, the wind speed was only 11 knots different than Camille. So they're comparative storms pre-landfall, but Katrina was much geographically bigger. So when we look at it that way, we say, well, of course Katrina produced a bigger storm surge. But again, that's not how people were looking at it back then. They were just saying, okay, what category is it coming into the coast as? Oh, Katrina's going to hit as a Cat 3? I think we'll be good then. We didn't flood from from Camille, which was a Cat 5. And this really cost people their lives. I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana for eight years. I bought my first house in a community that was really built right after Katrina. There were a lot of Katrina refugees that were my neighbors. I heard so many stories. My dear neighbors, Joyce and Irwin, became very close friends, lived right across the street. Joyce told us a story again and again and again. She was like the queen of her Mardi Gras crew one year. And she had these pictures of her as like the queen of Mardi Gras. She had the outfit. She had the crown. This was really life-changingly important to her, this moment, because it's, she lived in St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana. Mardi Gras is this huge thing socially. Day before Katrina, they leave. They think they're leaving for a day or two. They leave their, their, uh, their personal property, their, their memories, their uh, all these, I, I don't know the word I'm looking for, not artifacts, all these all, all these, uh, I don't know, these goods, I, I can't think of the word. They left these heirlooms, they, le they left these treasures, I'll call them treasures, on the ground level in St. Bernard Parish thinking they're coming back. Well, they couldn't get back in for weeks after Hurricane Katrina. When they did, they found there was 12 feet of murky, dirty, polluted water that had just been sitting in their house. I mean, obviously, th those treasures were long gone, right? Um, but they, they never imagined that Katrina would put that much water into their home. And again, how is it possible when, when it was only, a, quote, unquote, only a Cat 3? When we look pre-landfall, it was a Cat 5, well beyond a Cat 5 and geographically huge. So this, this can really help us to understand these patterns, how these storms work when we have a comprehensive data set like this. We can actually go back through time and see how these relationships work. So applications to people... This is really interesting. So a couple applications. I've talked about building the storm surge data set, U-Surge. I've talked about some of this academic research we've done, looking at return frequencies, looking at how hurricanes generate storm surge. And lastly, we have applications to people. So forecasting, will I flood? When there's a hurricane in the Gulf, my social media, my email is going crazy. Everyone's saying, here's my address. Am I going to flood? Everybody wants to know what the likeliness is that they're going to flood. And so these historic data and historic maps, these patterns can really help us because, again, your coastal shape and your coastal profile drives a lot of storm surge risk. The good news about this, when we build these data sets going back 140, 150 years, we start seeing again and again and again the same patterns that historical storms have produced for the saltwater flooding. 
The good news is the coastline is dynamic. It changes a bit over time, but not that much. I mean, the the shape of Lake Pontchartrain today, it's pretty similar to what it was 150 years ago, right? And so there are patterns that we see repeating themselves. And so, for example, the 1915 hurricane, I sometimes call it the forgotten hurricane that struck southeast Louisiana, Metro New Orleans, as a Cat 3 hurricane, that really took a very similar track as Hurricane Ida, Cat 4 Ida, in 2021 that made landfall down by Grand Isle. The pattern from Ida was very similar to the 1915 hurricane. I think that her, that storm surge forecasts overpredicted in some areas, underpredicted in some areas, and those patterns match very closely to 1915. This area down by Grand Isle, west of the Mississippi River, um, levees near the mouth of the Mississippi River. Um, it, it, the storm surge, I think, in general, was lower than forecast. And it, it matched pretty well with what happened in 1915. An area that was underpredicted, really the western end of Lake Pontchartrain, got a massive storm surge. And we see that again and again in the record. And this, this relates to a story in the days after Hurricane Ida. I was in Laplace, Louisiana. This is kind of just to the west of Metro New Orleans. This area is really susceptible to really compound flooding of saltwater coming off like Pontchartrain coupled with heavy rain. And I was in this neighborhood and I came across this couple who had the ladder to their attic pulled down and they had a high water mark like 30 inches above their garage floor. And they were just kind of running around. Um, there, there weren't a lot of people out and about, but they were out there. I started talking to them and they told me this crazy story. They stayed for the storm. This was, it came in as a Cat 4 hurricane down by Grand Isle in their neighborhood, maybe Cat 1, almost Cat 2 winds. And all of a sudden, their house started flooding and quickly. Water started rushing in. And by the time it got to, you know, eventually it got to 30 feet, or I'm sorry, 30 inches in the garage, they pulled down the attic ladder and scrambled up to the attic for refuge, which would be fine if it was a tropical storm or just prolonged heavy rain. But this wasn't a tropical storm. This was borderline cat one, cat two winds. And so there was a home in their neighborhood that the roof was completely gone. You would not want to be sheltering in your attic. But with the rapidly rising water levels, they felt like that was their only option. They sheltered in their attic. They could have died had their roof been blown off. And the reason they did that, they, they were afraid they were going to drown started talking and they said, if we knew we had flood risk, there's no way we would have stayed here. As I talked to them, I started to get this picture. First of all, they're in FEMA's X zone. So FEMA has these flood zones like the A zone, the AE zone. That means you're in the 100-year floodplain. According to FEMA's computer modeling, they are not in the 100-year flood zone. So they're, they're in what we call the X zone which I could not believe because they told me they know that there's documentation. They weren't there yet. They weren't the homeowners yet, but their home would, their home flooded in 20, 2012. So their home flooded in 2012 from Hurricane Isaac, and they said, as far as we know, that's the only flood. But looking back at the historical maps for that neighborhood, ground levels were around seven, eight feet. There were two 13-foot surges in the western end of Lake Pontchartrain, not that far from them that came in 1915 and in Hurricane Betsy in 1965. As you do the calculation and the mapping, I would bet everything I own that that would have been the fourth time that house would have flooded since 1915. I don't know when their house was built. I don't know if it was there in 1915, but if it was, 
Say it was built in 1910, I would bet everything I own that that house would have flooded at least four times. 1915, 1965, 2012, and 2021. Yet, they're not in the 100-year flood zone. How is that possible? Well, unfortunately, FEMA's flood maps are not really based on historical data. They're based on computer modeling. And so an area like this, that the historic maps show that they're very susceptible to flooding. But a lot of these events happened a long time ago, right? There aren't that many people that remember even 1965, let alone 1915. And so all of a sudden with the deeper history, we say, how are they not in the 100-year flood zone they would have flooded four times in 110 years. I mean, they should really probably be like in the 30-year flood zone. In other words, we should expect that house to flood on average every 30 years or on average once per mortgage cycle. You're signing up for that house. You should probably flood. That's not the perspective they had. What they were told is they're not in the flood zone. They didn't think they had really a flood risk. Those types of patterns are what we can do with historical data to look back at the historical maps to see how many how many times a place would have flooded before, which can give us insights for purchasing it. It can give insurance folks insights on what to charge for insurance, but it can also and probably most importantly inform homeowners if they need to get out before a storm, what the risk is of flooding for things like evacuation and just taking precaution from an incoming storm. So uh, pretty interesting stuff there. Again, that will help with, with long-term flooding, hopefully. You know, another, another quick example, I built the first comprehensive data set for Pensacola, Florida. High water marks for 55 hurricanes and tropical storms since the late 1800s. And what I found was FEMA's flood maps said the 100-year flood level in Pensacola is seven feet. Well, I found three events, 1906, 1926, and in 2004, that were between nine and 10 feet. Again, FEMA saying the 100-year flood zone is seven feet. We're finding if you had built two and a half feet higher than that, you would have flooded three times in the past 120 years. So they, they would say nine and a half feet is well out of the 100-year flood zone. I would say, no, you're actually like in the 40-year flood zone. So when I created these data and started doing these analysis, I looked at it like okay, these computer models, they're probably a lot of times wrong. I'm going to come in with all these data and, and tell people what the, what the flood level actually is. I have a different perspective on that now. So I'm just coming at it from a different angle. So there's randomness, there's luck. Pick up a die and start rolling it, and you'll notice, wow, I never seem to roll a three, but I roll a lot of fives. If you roll the die enough times, it all evens out. But with hurricanes, again, they're rare hazards. We would really need probably 800, 900 years of data to start to see this smooth out, right? In the meantime, there's randomness. So the way I look at it now, based on my 140-year lens of data, the 100-year flood at Pensacola is such and such, and that may or may not agree with the models. But we need to look deep into our history. We need to also look up and down the coast because you can see clustering. Maybe a place like Pensacola has just been a little bit unlucky. Maybe if you look to the east and west, their neighbors are more lucky. And so that might show that, you know, their risk maybe isn't quite as high. Um, but you also get areas, I mean, I'm thinking of Fort Myers. A lot of people said, oh, we, how could we have expected a Hurricane Ian? Well, when you look up and down the coast, uh, you know, Ian might have come in at 14, 15 feet. Well, you look 
north of you into Tampa Bay and you see evidence of a 15-foot storm tide in 1848, you look south of you in Hurricane Irma 2017, the Hurricane Center says there was 10, 11 feet of storm surge inundation in the Everglades. Well, inundation is saltwater level above ground. That translates to maybe a 14-foot storm surge. So again, people with Hurricane Ian said, well, we've lived here our whole lives. We've never seen anything like this. How could we have expected this? Again, if you look deep enough into history, you look south and north, you start to see comparable 14, 15 foot storm surges in the neighborhood. And so it, it, to me, wasn't as surprising, I think, as as it was to a lot of people who said we we never could have expected this. I want to talk lastly about product development. So again, the U-Surge project, you can go to u-surge.net. But we've launched flood information systems as a platform to kind of bring all of these digital data together uh, to, to give you a comprehensive flood history for your community, help you understand your flood statistics, but also to overlay building mapping and uh, infrastructure, things like that. So you can get an idea, okay, if there was a nine-foot flood in my community, how many buildings would flood? That's a kind of question that flood information systems uh, answers. And uh, you can go to floodinformationsystems.com to, to see a little bit about what we're doing there. We just finished a project for Biloxi, Mississippi last year, a pretty interesting project where we built their first comprehensive fl- coastal flood database and overlaid critical infrastructure and buildings to get an idea about the flood impacts in the region. So uh, people are hungry for these data. We're excited to produce them. We're excited to hear from people and what your data needs are. Uh, you know, we're creating these techni- these technologies to help you understand uh, your flood risk. We're uh, really interested to produce smart flood maps that you can click on, that you can navigate around. And we're ingesting all of these flood data. <clears throat> Again, it's what we call a data-driven product. So I, I want to um, lastly talk about, you know, this. what does it mean data-driven? And so a good example is driving because we all drive every day. Coastal flooding seems a bit abstract for a lot of people, but driving, we all drive every day. You realize like any given place you go on the map, your chance of an accident is never zero. There's always a chance. You could go to the quietest cul-de-sac, a, a little circle in the sleepiest neighborhood in, in a suburb. The chance of a bad car wreck there is really, really low, but it's not zero. You could have a drunk driver lost come flying through there and crash into a house. Not likely, but not zero. It's more likely that you'd see a big wreck at a busy intersection, right? But modeling, if you're a traffic modeler, you, you look at all those things, you get, you get the idea of likeliness that something may happen. Uh, with data, imagine if we could pull accident reports for your zip code since 1943. You're like, wow, we have 80 years of traffic accident data. Now all of a sudden, we're not just running a theoretical model. We're actually ingesting real observations and real data. That's what we're doing with usurge. That's what we're doing with flood information systems. We're saying, okay, the computer model suggests this. Let's b- bring a- along empirical or measured data to compare. I don't view, even though I'm a data guy, for 15 years I've been building the U.S. storm surge database, I don't view it as superior to modeling at all. I just look at it like we're coming at a different angle. And so sometimes we're going to have a really valuable, crucial perspective that the models may not pick up. Other times there may be clustering in the data. I mean, there may be areas, like in the past five, six years, South Louisiana has just been getting hammered. I know some, some insurance companies are pulling out saying there's too much risk. It could just be randomness, right? It could just be rolling that die and you keep getting a five 
eventually it'll smooth out. So again, the data just give a different perspective. They're not better or worse than the modeling. They're just coming at it from a different angle, but an important and a crucial angle. And I've been frustrated sometimes when modelers are like, oh, we've already had this modeled. That's true, but you also have to look at historical data as well. Uh, you know, lastly, let's talk about these coastal communities. I want to give a shout out to some great projects along the coast. You go to coastal Mississippi, you check out what FEMA's done and Mississippi, Alabama Sea Grant there right along the coast in their like public, uh, they have these public like, I guess, towers, kind of, not, they're, they're more than that. They're like a structure with uh, elevated areas, platforms. They have a, a public restroom in there. But they also have high watermarks for Katrina, Camille, and the base flood elevation, the estimated 100-year flood level. And they've done a lot of those along coastal Mississippi. My friend Don Moe down in Supermore Point, Louisiana, down by Vermilion Bay, he was keeping an archive for his community off there off of Vermilion Bay with all the high watermarks through all these hurricanes. And that was really cool when a, when a big hurricane would be in the area. We'd look at the high watermark and compare it to what's happened in history. Here in Galveston, again, down at our railroad museum, down at Tequilo's Mexican restaurant, we have all these high watermarks through history. It's a great archive of what's happened. <clears throat> My friend Jonathan Brazil with the National Weather Service, he comes over here to visit me every couple months. He loves our high watermarks in Galveston. It really gives a very thorough history of what's happened here. And he's been frustrated because he's gone along the Gulf Coast to different communities to try to get them to install high watermarks. And he's gotten a lot of pushback from people like in the business community saying, sorry, documenting flood levels is not good for business. And so he's been frustrated with that. I would be too. I really think it's good to document and archive our history. You don't want to scare business away, but if your path for successful business and successful community is hiding your hazard history, I think eventually you're going to get blindsided and that's not a way to prepare your business community or your residents to be resilient. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. What are your flood information needs? How would you use this information? The, the, the dream I have with this is eventually we'd have a web tool where people could click on it and actually get their comprehensive flood history for their community or you know, maybe even their home and find out, wow, my home would have flooded three times in history and here's how much water each time. So again, it, it's, a, it's a bit controversial. I think sometimes I've heard people say, well, if people knew that information, I might not be able to sell my house. Again, it, it, it's tough because what about for the new person coming in? Do we want them to blindly buy a very high-risky home not knowing that it's high-risk? Uh, we'd love to hear how you'd use products like this, what in what capacity, what platforms you'd use, things like that. And also, check this out. If you have any flood data, so again, it's very easy to go under our hood and see how our analysis works because it's based on actual storms. And those storms are based on archiving every scrap of information, not just tide gauge data, not just a scientific measurement, but that photograph your grandma had of her childhood home in 1957, we want to see that photo in usage. We want to use those data in usage. So if you have any flood history data in your family, in your community, you know, give us a shout out. Let us know. Go to floodinformationsystems.com. You can see our address there. 
give me a shout out. Let me know about that picture, that archive, that anecdotal story, that high watermark. We'll include that in your community flood history and, and build you a comprehensive history. Everyone should know their flood history for their community. Hey, this is climate science, y'all. I mean, think, think of temperature data. In the summertime, you hear, it was so hot in St. Louis today. They set a record high for July 12th. It was 101 degrees, right? We have all these records for precipitation and temperature and wind speed. Why not for coastal flooding? Why not say that hurricane just produced the fourth highest high water mark on record in Pensacola or whatever? Why not have those same types of data, especially for the world's most deadly and costly natural hazard? Even though it's hard to do this, the data are scattered. There's no one source. Now there is through usage and through flood information systems. This is our archive. We're going to continue to build this. I think for Galveston now, I'm up to 94 high water marks from different hurricanes and tropical storms. It's really cool when a new storm comes in to say, wow, that ranks at number 42 for all time. Just It, it gets you in the know. You know how a storm fits into history. You understand how things like climate change are shifting and, and affecting things. And again, you're not flying blind. So that's my gist with that. Y'all, thanks for hearing me out. I hope the audio was good on this. Again, we recorded it on a different platform. I wanted to cover the history behind usage and behind flood information systems. Again, go to floodinformationsystems.com. Go to u-surge.net. And, um, and some of these products are not extremely visible. We don't have all of the data um, just available for download. You know, if you're interested in, in something, give a shout out, reach out to us. But we have a tremendous archive. A lot of it is not visible right now. We're trying to carefully move ahead with it in a way that helps us be involved with projects and to do some great work, um, but also provide the data and the analysis that people need. Special thanks to all of our listeners for listening. Again, we're, we're here in the late part of winter. We're not quite into hurricane season yet, but you know it, it's never too early to think about your risk. I know people are buying real estate year-round and, and really wondering about their flood risk. So year-round is an important question here along the Gulf Coast. Wanted to give a special thanks to our GeoTrek marketing and uh, development team, publicity team as well. They always do an awesome job at getting this information out there. And a huge thanks to CNC Catastrophe and National Claims, the parent company behind GeoTrek Flood Information Systems, and now supporting a lot of the research behind usage. They've been amazing to work with. I, I never imagined working in the in the private sector would be so amazing. I, I, I always thought I'd just stay in academia, be, be a professor my whole life. And this has been a great Great time here with CNC, with flood information systems, usage, and GeoTrack. And every week, well, now we shift to biweekly podcasts, but it's it's really fun doing science communication, traveling around, going to workshops, doing storm documentation and chasing in the summer, but doing a lot of, I, my passion is really education and just getting people to think right about their risk, think right about the climate. And so they can, they can make informed decisions and not be blindsided. Everyone, thanks so much for listening. Hope this was an enjoyable podcast. I know not as interactive as when we have a guest, but we have some great guests coming up in the next couple weeks. Again, we're going to have some uh, some really fun guests this spring. You're going to, um, and we're going to be all over the place talking more about, uh, er, er, we're going to be talking about earthquakes, earthquakes. We're going to be talking about coastal flooding, emergency management, and even a very special series on tornadoes and tornado tourism. That's going to be coming up. We have a lot of great podcast episodes this spring. Signing off for the GeoTrek podcast, this is Dr. Howe. We'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.